1: Listening to the Wicked
2: Library.
1: (laughs) Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear. Filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the WICKED LIBRARY!
3: (laughs) Hello, this is Daniel Foytek and this is the Wicked Library Season 9, Episode 5. Today's story, The Case of the Signet Ring was written by Aaron Vleck and adapted for audio by Scarlett R. Algy. This story is the third in a series by Aaron if you're a fan of the show, then you know well who Jeffrey Sykes Vermillion is. However, if you are new to the show, you may want to go back to The Case of the Black Lodge, episode number 804, and The Case of the Yuletide Bride, episode 900, which precede this story. Today's story is narrated by Mary Murphy and features David Alt returning to the role of Jeffrey Sykes Vermillion, Erica Sanderson returning as Allegra Barlow, Mary Murphy also returning as Audrey Hawkwood, Amber Collins as Caroline Hilliard, Nelson W. Piles as Alistair Crowley, and Andy James Lovering as Maspeth. The story is scored by our good friend Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams, and of course the artwork on the cover is by Alex Murd. Now, without further ado, let's get wicked.
4: Jeffrey Sykes' familion pondered an ancient Chinese puzzle box in the downstairs study as a freezing rain pelted the leaded glass windows with renewed vehemence. Along with him were his protégé, Audrey Hawkwood, and his associate, Allegra Barlow. Audrey was still dressed in the leather breeches and tunic from her morning ride, and had barely made it back to the house before the sky opened up and drenched the city. She glanced up from her worn copy of a book by noted occultist and colourful character about town, Alistair Crowley, and smiled. Reminds me of home in the Hudson Valley. Allegra Barlow's hands fell away from the harp, where she was playing a work of her own composition. A study in four parts dedicated to the Egyptian god Chu, the lord of storms and winds. She stretched her fingers and retreated to the fire to warm herself.
5: I'd say the old boy was quite pleased with my efforts. Don't you agree, Vermilion? Vermilion looked up from the desk where he was seated. Hmm? I said I think Shu likes the piece I have composed for Saturday's festivities. Don't you agree?
4: Vermilion looked up from the desk where he was seated.
5: Allegra gestured
4: to the storm harrowing the townhouse. Lemillion put down the puzzle and stared at her for a moment.
2: Yes, it's uh, an admirable work, I'd say. Although the second refrain lagged a bit and was noticeably repetitive of the first in the last five bars, but I'm sure it will be easy enough for you to remedy. Perhaps a minor key would lend the necessary suggestion of foreboding to foreshadow the glorious cacophony of the final triumphant volley? This is the Lord of Storms, Allegra. Not the cherub of a gentle spring rain.
5: You're absolutely
4: right, of course. Before she could launch a stinging repartee that would remind him just who he was dealing with, a light knock at the door heralded the arrival of Maspeth, Vermillion's manservant.
1: A woman to see you, sir. No appointment, but she's quite insistent. Shall I tell her to call on the morrow for an appointment?
2: Not at all, Maspeth. Show her in. It must be important to compel the poor thing out in such a deluge. Very good, sir.
4: The gangly but light-footed man replied, and then disappeared. He returned a moment later with a quietly-dressed young blonde woman of about twenty-five, her face red from crying, and a handbag clutched tightly to her bosom. The scene might have seemed ordinary to Caroline Hilliard, a man and woman of middle age, he of imposing height and bearing, and dressed in a severe black suit, as was his custom. She, beautiful but austere in her copper-bobbed hair, perched like an egret before a magnificent harp, while the lovely young ingenue in smart riding attire lay draped lazily over a club chair, book in hand, the truth was anything but typical, and nothing was as it seemed. Geoffrey Sykes Vermilion, traveller, occult detective, and master of all things arcane, was known by reputation to Madame Hilliard, and this was why she sought him out in the middle of the ravaging storm. The lady musician, however, was not his wife, but rather the mistress of Anubis Lark an order of occultist rivaling the likes of Crowley and his sometimes questionable entourage. The girl, Audrey Hawkwood, was Vermilion's protégé, an intrepid student of the occult herself and a seasoned member of his party, despite her tender twenty-two years. Vermillion extended a hand in greeting.
2: I do come in, uh, Miss... Uh...
4: Mrs. Caroline Hilliard. She handed him her card.
2: Well, do sit down. How can we be of assistance, Mrs. Hilliard? You are aware of the specific nature of my work and the sort of cases that constitute my line, are you not?
4: Oh, yes. She rose briefly from the chair where she had sat, and then collapsed with a defeated air, and glanced at the other two women. If I might catch my breath,
2: I've been walking for hours. I wasn't sure if I could call on you or not. Please be at ease, madam. May I introduce Miss Audrey Hawkwood, my assistant and protégé, and Miss Allegra Barlow, my friend and trusted colleague. You may speak freely among us.
0: I don't know how to begin, really. You see, it's about my late husband.
2: I'm very sorry. When did he die and under what circumstances?
4: The motioned to the brandy on the sideboard and smiled when the woman nodded. Audrey retrieved the glass and served the woman as she fumbled in her handbag again and brought out something tied up in a red cloth. Well,
0: my husband, Asher Hilliard, died over a year ago in Afghanistan. We had not been getting on for some months, and since he was buried in Herat in the north part of that country, I saw no reason to trek halfway across the globe to attend the funeral.
2: Buried in Herat, you say? That seems an irregular turn. Was he posted there, an army man?
4: Vermillion motioned for Audrey to take notes. Pleased, the girl was already scribbling in her casebook. No, well,
0: he had been uh, some years ago. My husband was a good deal older than me and had his career well behind him when we married. He was in Afghanistan on some matters pertaining to his club, although I don't know much about it. His friends there, his lodge brothers, handled the affairs of the burial.
5: Lodge brothers? Was he a mason? Or is this some other sort of
0: lodge? No, he wasn't a mason. I know that. My father and brothers are masons, and he wasn't known to them. i married against my family's wishes, you see. As far as the lodge or its doings, I have no idea. As they neither involved me, nor did I ever attend their gatherings here in London.
2: Then what has troubled you so, if he is long dead?
4: I've received this today in an unmarked courier's post. She untied the red cloth and dropped its contents a signet ring with a large blue stone worked with intricate sigils into Vermilion's waiting hand. And what is this? Allegra walked up to Vermilion and took the thing to examine it more closely, then shook her head. This was my husband's lodge ring.
2: You're sure this is his very ring?
4: Yes.
0: Look at the inscription inside the band. Our two names intertwined. It even has the exact scrape mark from the time my husband took a foal in the street, not long after we married.
2: And the significance of this? You have no idea who sent it to you, or why?
0: Mr. Vermilion, my husband... This ring never left his hands. He was buried with it.
2: I see.
4: Allegra handed the ring back to the million.
5: May we keep it for a bit to check the inscriptions and seals? I've not seen this particular sigil, and it's from no order known to me.
0: Oh, yes. I want never to see that horrid thing again. Throw it in the
4: river for all I care.
2: Well then, Mrs. Hilliard, were your husband and this lodge of his involved in the nasty sort of occult?
4: She just sat there, her fist knotted in her lap, and her eyes darting to each of them and toward the door, as if she might flee at any
2: moment. If it's difficult for you to talk about your late husband again, I assure you we are sworn to the greatest discretion in all things.
4: I
0: do trust you, Mr. Vermillion. I just... well, there's some delicate details I've not shared with anyone, and... And
4: I hesitate.
2: I see. Delicate details.
4: He noticed the colour rise to her cheeks.
2: Would it help if I left you to speak with my lady colleagues in private?
4: She brightened at the suggestion. Oh, yes. Would you mind terribly? It's just that I...
2: No explanation required, madame. I shall return.
4: Vermilion rose and left the room, closing the door behind him.
5: I assure you that Audrey and I are well-experienced in Vermilion's business and are adept along these lines in our own right.
4: Allegra pulled her chair up, closer. So, where to begin then?
0: When I was married, I was just a foolish girl. Of course, I had never, that is to say, spent time alone with a man, in any sense. Any personal sense, that is.
4: She stammered smiling as a blush reddened her cheeks. I understand. Allegra smiled disarmingly.
0: That first night, the night of our marriage, was thoroughly unpleasant, but I did my best. There was so much about my husband I dared not question. He was obviously a very wealthy man, but I had no idea what his business was. None of my family or friends knew of him, or his family and society. He was a complete mystery to us. And I'm afraid this made the whole affair all the more thrilling. I fell in love with him, and all too quickly we were married.
5: Where did you meet, and how did your relationship begin?
0: (laughs) I met him in the street, if you can believe that. I assure you I'm not a brazen woman. Never would I have spoken to a man I did not know in the street. And never would I have allowed him to take me to lunch that very day as I did. I wasn't the sort of woman who sought out silly adventures or anything outside my proper life.
4: Caroline shook her head and down the rest of her brandy.
0: When I announced my impending marriage to my horrified parents, they demanded I break off the whole thing immediately. A fortnight later, we fled to Venice and we were married in a dazzling palazzo on the Grand Canal, amidst a robed mass throng, out of some carnival dream. I was absolutely drunk on it all, and prided myself on being so grown-up and cosmopolitan. I can assure you I was neither. But the things that went on in that palazzo mortify me now in memory. While they seemed thoroughly glorious at the time, I cannot speak of them, but I assure you...
5: (laughs) There is no need, I can well imagine.
0: We returned to London after several weeks. There I was ensconced in my husband's house, with a bevy of servants. I rarely saw Asher, except on those occasions when he sought out my bed. We maintained separate quarters in that house. The curious thing was that each time he came to my bed... His actions were strange, and unlike what I'd come to expect from hearing my sister's wedded bliss. For one thing, prior to our... our coupling, he always made me gaze into the blue stone of that horrid ring I gave you. I had to concentrate on its inscriptions, and the strange squiggles and slashes upon its surface. After several minutes of this, I would fall into some sort of trance during which I had many troubling dreams about the people we had stayed with in Venice. What was also disquieting, Asher always said a great many things during our coupling. Strange-sounding words in some foreign language, a sort of chanting that rose to a crescendo as he finished with me, which filled me with loathing. He sounded triumphant and so filled with hate. She broke off trying to compose herself. Then he'd return to his own room, and I would fall into a dark swoon, from which I awoke only late the next morning. On other nights, I heard him in his room, muttering and bellowing out to himself in some sort of speech he used when we were together. After our first year, Asher informed me that he had to go to Afghanistan on business. I didn't protest, rather, I was relieved to have some respite from the horrid life we'd fallen into. Then, two months later, I received word that he was dead. His solicitor informed me that the house and some small inheritance were mine, and I was free of him. How I came to hate that accursed ring and the man who bore it. I was glad, overjoyed that he was dead and buried with the thing, and I make no apology for saying it.
5: I can see why.
4: Allegra scowled. She shot Audrey a glance, but the girl sat mesmerized by what she was hearing. Then today, you received this very ring. The ring that was buried with him. Audrey finished her scribbles in the casebook. Yes,
0: and by what agency and for what reason... I have no idea. I don't know why, but I know there's something very sinister in this business. And I'm utterly helpless to defend myself against it. Miss Barlow, can you help me? Please?
5: (laughs) I believe we can, Caroline. Allegra moved to the sideboard
4: and poured another brandy, pressing it into the woman's hands. Vermillion returned shortly with Maspeth and the teacart. They had a quiet lunch and spoke no further of the ring and the deceased Usher Hilliard. Afterwards, Allegra brought Caroline her coat and hat, while Maspeth hailed a carriage for her. Then she was gone, leaving Vermillion and company alone in the study. ...to reconnoitre the Hilliard case and plan the next steps of the campaign. The next morning, Vermillion, Audrey and Allegra dispersed into the city. Audrey headed to the library in search of references to obscure cults operating in the area... ...and newspaper notices of irregular doings in Afghanistan... Vermilion sought the counsel of certain discreet barristers, and others known to him for any information on the mysterious Asher Hilliard and his ring, or the details of his curious death abroad. This left Allegra Barlow, mistress of Anubis Lodge, to seek out various associates, as well as her old friend and mentor, Alistair Crowley. The two crossed paths frequently in London at the man's flat, and at his home at Bolskine. She had even briefly touched down at the Major's compound at Cheffaloo during her early years, before she met her own companions at Anubis Lodge, and eventually joined forces with the Million. Allegra and Crowley had maintained amicable contact, and often ran into each other in society, and exchanged news of both polite occult society, as well as a more dubious escapades, of the darker branches of the extended family. After a late tea and the usual rebuff of the Major's amorous suggestions, Allegra left Crowley to his own devices, but not without taking away a very germane bit of information regarding the history of the singular signet ring. She had shown him a sketch that Vermilion had made, and the Major's eyes had narrowed tellingly as he examined it closely. Allegra returned to Vermilion's house, eager to add some of the missing pieces of their current puzzle. Before Rawtree could return to Vermilion's house with only sparse news of Usher Hilliard, she was set upon in the street by an unexpected invitation. Vermilion's interview of various parties had been most telling in its absence of even negligible details but to Vermilion it had reeked of the uncanny. Allegra's tea and biscuits with Crowley had been more forthcoming, and the mage had indeed recognised the insignia and inscriptions on the ring. It was the degree ring of a high-ranking member of a cult of magicians, he had said, a nefarious hybrid of certain tantric sects, Plagiarized by darker circles among the occult backwater They believed that subtle essences of the young Could be used to invoke and entrap certain powerful denizens of the ethers That could be coerced into doing their master's bidding
2: So of course they thrive where they may hide among the protected class And where's Audrey? She should have been back by now
5: Indeed The library's closed now Give her half an hour and then we go in search of our wayward girl. Before thirty minutes had passed, they heard the
4: front door open and Audrey's greeting to Maspeth, and then footsteps on the staircase. They waited, but she did not join them.
2: Strange.
5: I'll go check. Perhaps she's changing for dinner. She knows we're waiting. Five minutes later, Allegra rejoined Vermilion in the study. She found something, but she's so tired she just wants to sleep.
2: Strange again.
5: I asked her where she'd been, but she brushed me off and told me not to wake her for dinner.
2: Dash that. I'm going up there.
5: Geoffrey, no. Let her sleep. Something is amiss here. My skin prickles. I'll look in on her later. All right, then. Vermillion
4: glanced toward the staircase.
2: My dear Allegra, would you join me in my meditations this evening?
5: Of course.
2: I'd have a closer look at who we're dealing with before things become any more bothersome.
5: Agreed. Allegra Barlow
4: had retired just after midnight, and was reading in bed, when a gentle knock sounded at her door. Come. She set her book aside as the door opened, An Audrey entered in her dressing gown.
5: Is it too late for a talk? Never. Sit. Tell me all. So... Vermilion has never married. What? <laughs> You're slipping through the halls after bedtime to ask that.
4: Allegra chuckled and narrowed her eyes. And Audrey blushed and smiled. I've always wondered. You two are so close. Pardon me for saying this, but I cannot imagine a more beautiful couple. Audrey! I know, I speak my mind, and it's not always welcome. I'm sorry.
5: She looked away. Vermilion keeps his own counsel on such matters, as do I. We aren't the usual sort of people, in case you hadn't noticed, and we conduct the affairs of the heart, when we conduct them, along our own lines. Now, back to bed. This discussion is closed. Should Vermilion wish to open the matter and say more, that is his business. We'll discuss your findings at the library over breakfast. Audrey stood
4: and returned to her room without another word, or even a good night. Just after the steeple nearby had struck the quarter hour on three o'clock, the front door of Vermillion's townhouse shook with the angry pounding of someone demanding entrance.
1: Vermillion! You really must keep your house in better order. Come down at once.
4: You too, Allegra. Allegra and Vermilion threw on dressing gowns and scrambled toward the front door, almost knocking down a groggy maspeth as he struggled into his jacket and flattened his hair and pulled open the door.
1: Hey, Mr. Crowley and Miss Audrey to see you, sir.
4: The figure of Alistair Crowley, still dressed in evening attire, great coat and top hat, barged through the front door, shoving Audrey in before him and glaring at the household assembled in the entryway. Alistair? Allegra frowned, shaking her head as she stared at Audrey.
2: Crowley. Blasted man, what's the meaning of this? And Audrey? What the devil?
4: It's my fault. I went back out. I couldn't sleep. And I needed some air.
2: Vermilion
4: shot her a glance that paralyzed her for a moment. And then she ran upstairs and slammed the door of her room. You'll be damned
1: happy I was on the prowl later than usual and saw her.
2: That'll be all, Maspeth.
4: Vermilion released the befuddled manservant to return to his bed.
2: In here, Crowley.
4: Vermilion indicated the library off the entry hall. Now let's have it. He added once they were all seated, brandies in hand.
1: I saw her walking down the street alone, staggering a bit as if she'd been in her cups much of the evening. Never!
5: She was in bed well before midnight, and she takes no spirits beyond the goblet or two of wine with dinner. I thought she might be some tart
1: on her way back to her rooms after a night's roll.
4: Vermilion snorted. "'and turned his head in disgust.
1: "'The way of the world, old stick. "'You might wish to leap down from your pilloried perch from time to time "'and dust off your backside. "'But by and by I caught sight of her face and recognized the girl. "'Now here's the rub. "'She soon met the company of two men.' I didn't recognize the blokes as part of your set, so I went to spy my little eye, and what I saw I liked not at all. As soon as they saw me hail the girl with a hearty doff of my hat, they took off. And here we are. You're welcome, and good night, and many thanks for the fine and dandy to warm my gizzard."
4: Crowley rose to take off his hat and cane, and slipped back into his topcoat.
2: Good man, Crowley. I'm in your debt, I'm sure.
4: Vermillion slapped Crowley on the back, but didn't relinquish his look of concern. As am I, Alistair. Crowley glanced at her, his eyes a-twinkle.
1: I'll bear that in mind, madam.
4: Crowley raised her hand to his lips, and kissed it lightly. And with that, he was gone, leaving Allegra and Vermilion sitting in silence. After some minutes, Allegra rose and went to a small carved wooden case
5: she kept in the bookcase. She met with two men in the middle of the night. This troubles me greatly, Geoffrey. She opened the box. As it does me. She came to me tonight asking strange questions and then she literally escaped the house after we were asleep.
2: What questions?
5: Vermilion, there's more afoot here than an obstinate girl and a midnight frolic. I would see what the ethers make of this. She placed the ancient tarot deck on the table. Vermilion
4: nodded and left the room without comment, leaving his friend and colleague to consult the voices that rode the haunted winds and companioned her mind and spirit. Allegra had laid out the cards, and was taking stock of the curious arrangement when, for the second time that night, a violent pounding echoed through the front hall. Glancing at the clock, she saw it was well past four. She bolted toward the door, calling for Maspeth to attend from his first-floor apartment, and the man was soon at her side, this time with his pistol at the ready. Opening the door and placing himself as warden against any physical intrusion, Maspeth sagged in surprise as a limp form of Caroline Hilliard fell into his arms. To the sitting room! Allegra flung open the doors, and Maspeth carried the woman to a place near the hearth and laid her down, then retreated to the front door to see if anyone else was about on the street. A flurry of voices from above sounded. And then Vermilion and Audrey stormed into the room and stood staring.
2: What in God's name is going on in this house?
4: He strode to the supine figure draped in sensate across the divan. Is she hurt? <sighs> oh my. The Hilliard woman opened her eyes in surprise. Oh, Mr. Vermilion, Miss Barlow, I'm so sorry to
0: intrude upon you, but the most horrible thing has happened... I... I must ask for my husband's ring back immediately. Now, if I might. She sat up
4: and shoved her disheveled blonde hair back from her face.
2: Tell me everything.
4: The million said it gravely, and Allegra winced to see no trace of sympathy on her old friend's face, but rather irritation and a fading interest in this curious case, which so far hadn't really been any case at all.
0: Yes... Earlier this evening, a man came to see me. He said... He said if I ever wanted... He... he
4: (laughs) Her voice trembled with fear. Then she stopped, blinked,
5: and collapsed unconscious onto the divan. Maspeth, get her upstairs. Put her in the ivory room. Vermilion, let her sleep. She's beside herself and there's no point in putting her through any more tonight. We'll sort this out in the morning. Good night, then. Audrey's voice was little more than a whisper as she went upstairs. The cards? I laid them out, but they were a mess, a jumble of things. and would take a devil of a doing to make sense of them.
2: Indeed, and I grow less interested in this matter by the hour. You put the reed to the Hilliard woman in the morning, and if you think it worth our while, we'll continue. Otherwise, we bid her adieu.
4: The turned on his heel and left the room. Allegra hated it when he got into one of these moods. He could retreat into himself for days, and his power became implacable, cutting like a sword anyone who got in the way of his surgically removing the offending situation and people from his sphere. She knew when to dig in her heels and bring her own sober, feeling wisdom to bear and make him see reason, and when to let it go. She was of a mind herself to counsel Mrs. Hilliard on the morrow, to seek the help of the police, not an occult detective. She retired to her room and in not sleep for an hour. It seemed she had only just shut her eyes when there was a gentle but insistent knocking at her bedroom door, and then Maspeth's voice called out in alarm.
1: Miss Allegra, Mr. Vermillion is calling for you. It seems Mrs. Hilliard has vanished while we slept and Miss Audrey has gone as well.
4: Vermilion was waiting for her in the drawing room. His cold features and clenched fist were those of a man wholly bereft of any patience or sympathy for the events that had descended upon his household.
2: Sit down, Allegra.
4: Vermilion gestured to the small round table near the fire as he closed and locked the door. She seated herself and he came and joined her taking her hands in his and looking into her eyes. She immediately relaxed and clasped his hands firmly, knowing what was to follow. Vermilion's lips moved wordlessly for a few moments and his breathing slowed. Allegra closed her eyes and then a moment later she felt her astral soul quiver like a flame And leave her body She ascended beyond the room Beyond the house Out and away above the city Opening her eyes Allegra knew that her friend and partner in things arcane Could see with her eyes Could feel what she felt of the ethers Flowing over her subtle body
2: Where's Audrey?
4: She felt his voice break over her like a roll of thunder.
2: And the Hilliard woman, are they together? What is afoot here, Allegra? Seek, find, reveal.
4: Allegra Barlow looked down at the city. A vast warren of lights and warmth. And the buzz and hum of machines newly brought into being in a dying world as it gave birth to a new. She soon saw two warm, red, pulsing glows among the city's throng that were familiar to her, one so much more than the other. She could feel Audrey's essence in a house far below, and Caroline Hilliard was with her. They were alive and unharmed. The interior of the house and its occupants began to emerge through the mist, when Allegra gasped, and her eyes shot open. Vermilion fetched a brandy, and she drank it down, then sighed, and took a deep breath. So?
2: Indeed. We're off, then, to bring this case to a speedy close, to retrieve our own, and to bring its culprit to swift justice.
4: Inside the hour, Vermilion and Allegra were charging up the staircase of a fashionable townhouse, In a quarter of the city otherwise not quite as fashionable as it once was. Just as Vermilion was about to rap brusquely on the door with the head of his cane, it swung open, and an exotically dressed young man, attired after the current Ottoman fashion, bowed curtly without expression and ushered them to the nearest room, where the shadows of a roaring fire danced upon the walls." Jeffrey Sykes Vermilion had never set foot in this residence before. However, Allegra Barlow had. The lord of the house stood warming himself by the fire, wearing a fine scarlet lounging jacket trimmed in black velvet, a pipe highlighting the broad smile that animated the roguish face. Vermilion, Allegra! He bowed to the arrivals gesturing for them to take seats where they would.
1: So good of you to complete our little party. I was about to
2: send for you. Crowley, what are you playing at here? Explain yourself immediately, and these two.
4: Vermillion glared at Caroline Hilliard and Audrey Hawkwood, who sat nearby, drinking tea and playing backgammon. Audrey, are you all right? But she knew the answer and saw the proof of it.
1: Do sit down, you two, and I'll explain all. First, let me introduce my own student, Miss Maud
4: Kingsley. At this, the former Caroline Hilliard raised her cup and toast and smiled, as Audrey grinned.
2: So you were having us on, I see.
4: The million helped himself to a snifter of Crowley's best, and wasn't challenged for the boldness. Allegra declined and they sat down to consider their host. Yes.
1: You see, it's very important for Miss Kingsley's training that she master the arts of subterfuge and the sciences of appearing wholly other than she is when necessity demands it. Indeed, it is not the creature you see before you much transformed from the timid widow who tearfully laid out her sorry tale of woe before
4: you. Crowley beamed with pride. The girl sat transformed in black silk harem trousers and a scarlet tunic. Her long black hair lay in a tangled plait to her waist, while the matronly blonde coif of Caroline Hilliard lay on her dressing table upstairs.
1: You and Allegra were perfect for the gambit for so many reasons. Neither of you would suffer too much discomfort at the ruse, and it was not designed to persist beyond its usefulness. No harm done, as they say.
4: Crowley was bristling with satisfaction, delighting in having pulled one over on Vermilion the two
1: of you wouldn't fail to rise to the cries for help from a beleaguered widow and there were certain details of the story i was certain would elicit your keen interest Geoffrey. if i might be so familiar
4: this last was met with a curt nod from vermilion
1: and and your friend vermilion here is just so damned full of himself I thought it good fun to have some innocent sport with him on the side. Don't you think, old chap?
2: Perhaps. Shall I tell you when I was first onto this farce, if not perhaps its author?
1: Surely you jest. I saw the look in your eyes when you raced in here, alight with righteous indignation to rescue these damsels in distress. Yes,
2: and is not my art also incumbent upon not seeming to be as I am? Nevertheless, when Miss Hilliard, or Kingsley as it happens, first appeared on my doorstep, I rose innocently to the bait, I'll not deny that. But when I left her to the council of Allegra and Audrey and went to the hall to see to other matters, I noticed her outer cloak and umbrella were completely dry. How odd, I thought, just moments before she had been bemoaning her long wander through the downpour that plagued us the whole day. Clearly the woman had been deposited at my door in a carriage and had not arrived on foot as she claimed. Odd indeed, don't you think, Alice, sir?
4: The million inquired with the hint of a smile on his lips.
2: I'd say so, old stick. Do go on. So we proceeded apace, though I didn't share with Allegra my initial unripe (laughs) suspicions.
1: (laughs) Prudent, continue.
2: Then there was the matter of the ring that curious and troubling ring that seemed to bother our young guest near hysteria. She took special pains to point out a deep scar on the ring's band, ostensibly from a fall in the street that her husband had suffered. It was clear to the naked eye, without benefit of the glass, that the scar was new and not possibly sustained some two years or more ago, again as our young guest, your student, had claimed. So, my hackles were up for the game, and I made a great show of grasping at the bait. I inquired at my club and a few others where I enjoy entry and showed the ring around. None were the least bit familiar with such a notorious treasure. Then I visited every jeweller of note in the city. Again, none had ever laid eyes on the thing or its like, even for repairs, and not one of them valued the obvious paste at above a few quid. An unlikely bauble to be held so dear by men of supposed great wealth and material and arcane prowess. By now I was indeed hooked, and not in the intended way, I'm sure.
4: Vermilion paused to refill his glass and that of his host. Well, Vermilion, what about me? Weren't you the least bit frightened for my safety? She seemed disheartened that Vermilion admitted to no worry about her in these affairs during which she had not once, but twice, mysteriously disappeared from the residence.
2: Oh, Audrey, you've come so far and yet have so far yet to travel on your journey. When Allegra and I left the room to see to this young vixen's safe departure, I glanced back into the room and saw Maud immediately begin whispering in your ear. I saw that grin you get when you think you're being sly and was immediately on to the pair of you, I didn't surmise just then what exactly I was on to. Then Crowley here returned with you in the middle of the night under peculiar circumstances, and my suspicions ripened further. But I had to see the pageant through to the encore, did I not? Oh. I knew two things.
4: Vermillion stood, assuming his professorial pace before the fire, and continued.
2: One, it was not like you to misbehave in this fashion, so irresponsibly and to conceal your comings and goings and two knowing what I know of the wards and seals set upon every inch of my house I knew no one could have absconded with you either physically nor could they have drawn you out on a glamour you had to be in on it with this young woman knowing you would never do or allow me harm I assumed it was some sort of folly
4: for a moment Audrey looked totally devastated
2: You'll one day be as clever as our friend Miss Barlow, I'm sure of it, but that day has yet to come.
4: Audrey turned a
5: deep scarlet. And what about me? When did you plan to let me in on the caper? You knew I was suspicious enough to lay down the cards.
2: I had to determine you weren't playing some nefarious part yourself in an attempt to fool your dear old friend.
4: Vermilion shook a finger at her. Allegra just shook her head and gazed at the ceiling.
2: I could not be certain who all among my household had been enlisted in this prank. Not even the virtuous Maspeth was above suspicion.
1: Good, good, go on then.
2: The rest was fairly innocuous if tedious.
4: Crowley raised his eyebrows in objection.
2: Once I had determined that the affair was harmless if irritating, I sought to wind things down. I had used my own channels of inquiry off the board, so to speak. A servitor whom I retain for such matters. This creature assured me that there would be no such order in existence as my would-be client described. No foul play at work in my house, no parlor tricks to rob me of hearth and home and fortunes, no danger at all lay on the horizon for me and mine. That's when I relaxed and played my hand at leisure.
5: And that hand was literally mine. (laughs) We did the mind joining. And you saw where Audrey and Maud were. You blocked my sight just before I could see exactly what house sequestered the girls. Then you waited until we were on the man's very doorstep to let me in on what was happening. Vermilion, I'll have words with you when we return to the mansion.
4: Allegra said it sternly, but tossed him a smile.
5: And you, Alistair. That was quite a performance you put in two days ago when I came to solicit your help. Crowley closed his eyes and bowed again.
1: One endeavours on as one can. I too like to keep my fingers nimble in the theatrical arts.
2: So you had me for a moment, old man, I'll concede you that.
4: Vermilion pointed a finger at Crowley and winked.
2: But the ruse was so quickly unveiled.
4: Very
1: good then, sir, very good. So we have taken the measure of one another, you and I, and we've learned a thing, have we not?
2: Indeed we have. Without the mirth, magic is not a thing to be trifled with.
4: The party laughed and retired to the dining room, where the gentleman in the Ottoman garb had laid a magnificent Turkish feast. Long after sunset, the party broke up and Vermillion and company returned to the mansion. Jeffrey Sykes Vermillion and Alistair Crowley did not become friends that day, but each had taken the other's measure for future reference.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, NinthStory.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Aleister Crowley to fool you.